Right, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to the book of First Samuel. We'll be in chapter 9, so we'll start today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one around you somewhere, a hardback one. We'll be on page 231. That's where First Samuel 9 is located in the black ones around you. Uh, we'll be reading a good bit of that this morning, so you will be helped if you do open that up, open up your Bible, and follow along. But again, like I said in my prayer earlier, welcome back to our students and to our teachers. We even have a sign that says that, and it's great to see you guys. I've been in and out over the last several weeks, so I feel like I haven't really seen you guys. Out of the last four weeks, I've been here one, and so it is great to uh, be back here with all of you this week. And talking about school, I'll probably shed some tears later this week. My youngest starts kindergarten, and so that's going to be crazy. Um, and uh, I've got two middle schoolers now, um, eighth grade, sixth grade, fourth grade, kindergarten, all under one roof over at Mill Creek, um, so that's going to be crazy. I'm going to turn 40 this year. I'll probably have a midlife crisis. There's just lots of stuff going on. Um, with the start of school, it kind of makes me think back to when I was in school, and particularly my later high school years. It was not uncommon, because I had to drive. It was about a 30-minute drive to to school, um, and it was not uncommon for me to be late to school because the cows were out. And so I'd have to get the cows back, all right? And so pretty soon after maybe like the third time, I think the office stopped believing me. And so I'd walk into the office and be like, let me guess, the cows were out again. I'd be like, they are, I promise. I'm not lying. We have bad fences. And so, they, you know, but then they'd give me a note and I would go on to, to class or whatever. Well, this morning as we start in, fir- in first chapter, First Samuel chapter 9, we also have a guy whose livestock are lost. But they're not cows, they're donkeys. And they're not just any kind of donkeys. Apparently these are like stealth donkeys. Because he cannot find them. And he's traveling all over the place looking for these donkeys. And he cannot find them. And the guy who can't find them is a guy by the name of Saul. Alright, he'll come to be known as King Saul. We'll learn about that today as we look at his rise uh, to the to the kingdom. Um, But for those who haven't been here the last few weeks, let me just kind of give a flyby over the past couple of chapters, just kind of bring us up to speed. And so this is around the year 1050 BC. God has delivered his people out of Egypt. All right. He's brought them out through signs and wonders and miracles. They finally made it into the promised land. So everything should be good, right? But it's not. Spiritually, they are in shambles. They've got a They've had a priest over them named Eli who's corrupt and and incompetent. He has two sons that are worse. God actually kills them because they're so bad. In the midst of all this, Hannah, out of her barrenness, gives birth to Samuel, an amazing prophet. But by the time we come to chapter 8, his sons have also grown corrupt. They're doing the same thing Eli's sons were. They've been in battle and they've been at war. Chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant is taken from them. The Philistines have it. And then they they start getting afflicted by God. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel and the people begin repenting. And it looks pretty good there in chapter 7. They've been repenting for 20 years or so. And then we come to chapter 8 and it all starts to come unhinged. Like I said, his sons have turned corrupt. There's injustice prevailing in the land. And rather than dealing with the injustice and dealing with their sin, the people decide that they want a political solution and a political savior. They want to be just like everybody else, like all the other nations. They don't want to be holy and set apart. 
They don't want to be different. They want to be just like everybody else. Christians, we've got to be very, very careful of becoming too conformed to the world. We should be distinct in some ways. We should be set apart in some ways. If we look too much like the world, we, we need to be very, very careful. We don't want to be like everybody else. But the nation of Israel didn't care. They wanted to be just like everybody else and have a king like all the other nations. Now, they had God was supposed to be their king, but they did not want him to be king over their lives. They wanted to relegate him to the sidelines, maybe keep him around as kind of a lucky rabbit's foot in case things go bad. You know, they kind of got him in their corner, but they wanted just enough of him for that, but nothing more. They didn't want him intruding in their life. And it makes me wonder how many of us might have the same attitude. We don't really love God. Maybe we don't even like God. But we want to hedge our bets and keep Him around and we have just enough of Him. We need to be very, very careful. The New Testament says that's about the most dangerous position you can be in. Jesus says, either be hot or be cold, but don't be lukewarm. But Israel is lukewarm. This is where they are. And so rather than turn to God, they try to solve what is actually a spiritual problem with a political solution and in their efforts to do so they become more enamored with political power than fidelity to God let me say that again they become more enamored with political power than fidelity to God not unlike many self-professed evangelicals today and so Israel demands a king like all the other nations in very much a Romans 1 kind of way, God turns them over to their request and gives them a king named Saul, who truly does turn out to be a king like all the other nations have. And so Saul, we're going to be seeing him pretty much to the end of 1 Samuel, though like his real reign is only a week long, and then God appoints David, but, but David won't take over the throne for years and years and years and years. But over the next three weeks, we're going to look at Saul like really closely. This week, we're going to look at Saul's rise. Next week, we're going to look at Saul's fall. And then the next week, chapter 15, we'll look at Saul's rejection. But today, as we look at chapters 9 and 10, 11, I want, to, I want us to read the story, tell the story about how he becomes king. But in the midst of that, there were three things that really just kind of popped off the page, like big overarching truths and I want to share with you this morning. I think that I think they're helpful and sobering. And so let's, let's begin by reading a little bit for a while, and then I'll wind up paraphrasing to save some time. But let's start chapter 9, verse 1. Again, please read along with me, page 231 in the Bibles around you. <clears throat> there was a man of Benjamin, that's a, that's a tribe, there's 12 tribes in Israel. This is a tiny one. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so th that's our introduction to Saul. He's big, he's tall, he's handsome, and he's welcome. Ladies, don't swoon, right? Worldly, from a worldly way of looking at things, he's the total package. First round draft pick, cover of GQ, like this is the guy, total stud. Verse 3. 
Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you. Arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Salashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Paul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And so just notice here, again, these are like stealth donkeys, okay? Saul can't find them, all right? I'm no tracker, but this is a herd of donkeys. They leave tracks and large excremental evidence. They should not be hard to find. But he can't find them. But notice also what's happening here. They've come to the land of Zuf, which is where Samuel lives. And chapter 3 tells us that Samuel is known throughout all the land of Israel, yet Samuel, or yet Saul doesn't know him. The servant does, but Saul doesn't, as we're going to see here in just a few minutes. I mean, this is the guy who's going to become the king, and he doesn't even know who God's prophet is. Okay, he, he's in Samuel's hometown. What we're going to see in just a minute, he's in Samuel's hometown. Saul's going to bump in, Saul is in Samuel's hometown. He's going to bump into Samuel, and he's going to say to him, hey, do you know where this prophet guy is? Right? And, and Samuel says, I'm him. This would be, Samuel is so well known, should be so well known, that it would be like us going to D.C., 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, bumping into President Trump and being like, hey, do you know where I can find the president? You should know what he looks like, right? They should know who Samuel is. Even if they've never met him, they should know who he is. Saul has no clue. Look at verse 11. And as they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. That verse will haunt Saul, as we'll see in a couple weeks. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city as they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before, so now we're going to kind of get like back behind the curtain, see what's going on behind all this stuff. We get a little peek from the author's point of view, from God's point of view, an omniscient look at what's going on. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. 
And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered seer, and Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And so just kind of look how this is shaking up, all right? Saul has come to Zuth searching for his donkeys. Samuel is there searching for the king, right? These pieces are starting to come. Then there's going to be a feast, and we don't know in whose honor it's going to be yet. But we're about to find out. Look at verse 20. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, back to these stealth donkeys, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And then look at this. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, like, we get a piece of humility here from Saul. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it Aside. Now, just real quick, when I read this, I had a nightmarish flashback to Central Asia. I've been the honored guest a couple of times in Central Asia when we go there. But whenever someone says to the cook, hey, bring out the portion that's been set aside for you, I get really nervous. The last time they said that, they brought this out. That's a sheep's head. I've already cut the ears off of it and handed it to people by this point. That's why there are no ears. There were ears. Yes, oh my gosh, is right. So I don't, I don't know about Saul. I don't know if he's like, what are they putting aside? Where are they br-? I don't know if he's nervous, but it's a leg, so it's okay. Look at verse 24. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat. Because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he laid down to sleep. And so just look at the events of this day and how it's shifted. Saul starts the day looking for these stealth donkeys. He ends the day as an honored guest at dinner. And he he doesn't know it yet, but tomorrow morning, and we'll read about this in a few minutes, he's going to be anointed king. And so, like, do you see how God is working and bringing all of these things together just through very, very ordinary events? And that's the first, like, major truth that I want us to see this morning. You've got it in your notes. It says, in providence. Well, let me give you the rest of it. In providence, God accomplishes his purposes very often through seemingly ordinary events. I'll repeat it because I know that's long. 
in providence, God accomplishes his purposes very often through seemingly ordinary events. God accomplishes his purposes very often through seemingly ordinary events. I mean, chasing after wandering livestock is not uncommon. It wasn't for me in high school. It isn't for Saul here. Yet, it was God's unfolding plan that directed the paths of these men in ways completely unforeseen to them. And friends, this is so often how God works. In providence, God accomplishes His purposes very often through seemingly ordinary events. It's just that we can't see it happening in the moment. You might get a trace of it as you look back and you know, get some separation. But in the present, you may be just as much in the dark as Saul is here. Saul has no clue what's about to happen. Now, all he can see is that his donkeys are lost. And all that you might see is just something common going on around you. But God's still at work. So take courage in that this morning. Take courage in God's benevolent, kind providence in your life. Benevolent, kind providence in your life. And because like God's providence in, in lives is not like belong to some category of Green Beret Christians, all right, as if there was such a category, because there's not. It's not just for like major figures in salvation history. No, it's for, it's for all people. It's for me, it's for you. Proverbs 16, 9 says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so preschool kids that are in here, God is at work providentially in your life already. Elementary kids that are in here. God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge is at work in your life right now. Take courage. Middle school kids, high school kids, college students. God is providentially at work in your life right now, setting you on paths that he will work out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Young adults... Middle-aged adults, senior adults, God is providentially at work in your life in love and care right now. In the midst of difficulties, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of things you don't understand. Things that are way harder than lost donkeys, but still things going on. Friends, the silent, sovereign, kind hand of God is at work in your life for your good even when you don't realize it. Silent, sovereign hand of God. And He's always working. He never sleeps, never slumbers. Take courage in that this morning. This is God in your life. Not someone else's, your life. In providence, God accomplishes its purposes very often through seemingly ordinary events. That's number one. Let's jump back into the story. We'll finish it, and then we'll do number two and number three. For the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase the rest of it. And so the beginning of chapter 10, you have this kind of secret anointing uh, of, Paul, uh, of Saul by Samuel. 
And it's proven by three signs. And then after that, there's this public inauguration. And it's a really unusual inauguration. It begins very critical. And then it becomes kind of comical. Right? But at the beginning, in the critical portion, Samuel pulls no punches. It's not a typical opening. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's so glad to see you. Glad you could come out for this special occasion this morning as we inaugurate a king. No, here's what he says, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the, law, the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And so Samuel, again, as he did in chapter 8, is just hammering them and calling them out for their rejection of God. But they asked for a king, and so God's giving them a king. And so eventually Saul is named. Here's the comedy piece. They call him out and he's over hiding amongst some baggage. He doesn't want to come out. Not exactly the most inspiring of a beginning. And so people are like, how can this guy save us? He's a coward. And as we'll begin to see as we get into later chapters, yeah, he absolutely is. But not in chapter 11. Chapter 11, Saul is an absolute boss. It's the high point of his, of his entire reign. He unites the 12 tribes of Israel that have been separated for generations. He brings them. They go out to fight as one. And they totally decimate the Ammonites. And then Saul actually points the people to God. This is the high point of his entire reign. All right? That's how chapter ends. It, 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 chapter 11 ends with this high note. All right? This is the story of the ascendancy of Saul. All right? Today we're looking at his rise. And this is the high point. But there are cracks everywhere. I mean, how is he going to shepherd his people if he can't even shepherd a herd of donkeys? I think that's what that's kind of implying. He can't even do that. How is he going to lead the nation to be the people of God if he can't even recognize who the prophet of God is? And then it's at least interesting that he's spoken of as being tall. Because everyone else in the Old Testament who's ever mentioned as being tall is an enemy of God every single time. But beyond that, just looking at the big picture, the nation has rejected God. And to be sure, having a king wasn't the problem. It's why they wanted a king. And it's the kind of king they wanted that was the problem. They wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And they wanted a king that was like the kings of all the other nations. And so they had moved from fidelity to God in chapter 7 to looking to a savior and a politician in chapter 8 and 9 like all the other nations did. And God's people aren't to be that way. Right? God's people then, the nation of Israel, weren't to be that way. God's people now, the church, aren't to be that way. But the nation of Israel, they got what they wanted. But it was not because they were being blessed. It was because they were being judged. And that brings us to our second major truth this morning. In judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing we most desire. In judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing thing we most desire 
Have you ever considered that? That getting what you want might not be God's blessing. It might be God's judgment or discipline. That's what's going on here. Israel rejected God. They wanted a king like all the other nations. So in judgment, God gave it to them. I mean, God pretty much spells this out in chapter 9, verse 17. Look back at chapter 9, verse 17. You have a Bible open. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, if you don't have an ESV or a couple of other translations, you might read in there where it says rule over or reign over. But the verb here is atzar in Hebrew. It's a different verb than the typical word used for reign over. And it almost always means something negative, all right? Connoting like an imprisonment or a hindrance, a restraint. And so a positive reading of this verb is very unlikely. The ESV does it right with restrain. And so Robert Bergen argues that the word teaches that the Lord is determined to use Saul's career as a means of disciplining the nation. As he governed Israel, Saul's policies and behavior would hinder the welfare of the nation and act as a sort of barrier separating Israel from God's best for them. And when you read ahead, you see this is exactly what happens. This is what comes to pass in Saul's reign as king. Saul did at first deliver them from the hands of the Philistines and went out and fought the people's battles like they asked. But at the same time, he sort of shut up his people and hindered them from true worship and fidelity to God. And by the time of the end of his reign, the nation is in chaos. And remember, they asked for this. I mean, even Saul's name hints at this. His, his name, Saul, literally means asked for. Asked for. So it's almost like God is saying, hey, you've turned away from me and sought a political savior like all the other nations do. Well, here you go. And remember, you asked for it. And so in judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing we most desire. This is Romans 1. John read it earlier, but listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Lust is something you have to have. You want it right now. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, again, in judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing we most desire. And the scary thing is that sometimes we take the reception of such things as a sign of God's pleasure. 
instead of his discipline. I mean, don't we often assume that when our circumstances are good in our lives as we define them, then that means we're good with God. I think that's a mistake that Christians make very often. Like I said, it's a mistake. Right? Getting what you want is not a reliable guide or indication that things are going well in your life. It could be, but it could be judgment. It could be Romans 1, and God's given you over to that. You want it? Fine, have it. That's a scary place to be. And so we need to think hard for a minute, lest this might be us. I want you to think about your hobbies. I want you to think about your interests. I want you to think about what you read about and what you like to watch and what you like to do. I want you to think about those things that you are most passionate about. Those things that take up the bulk of your mental energy and time, your emotions, maybe even your money. These things that you are just, you deeply love and, and desire. Now think about those things. What, what is most important to you? Not just like number one, but let it go down the list a little bit. Think through this. Think hard. And now think about these things. Are those things leading you toward Christ? And his ways and fidelity to him, or are they dragging you away? Even if it's subtle, it's a slow fade. I mean, are these things that you desire, okay, and for your own soul and for the souls of your children that maybe you sign up for things, let's be honest here, are these things that you so love and so desire leading to an increased commitment to Christ? Or are they drawing you away from that? Or drawing your kids away from that? We all need to think really, really hard about that. And if we're serious about it, maybe even ask trusted people in your community group. Would you speak into my life? Do you see anything in my life that may be going in this direction? Things that I'm engaged in or, or thinking about that are drawing me away from Christ. Because we are so blind. We are so blind to those things in our own lives and in the lives of our kids that are inherently morally neutral but become morally negative because they draw us away from Christ. And so friends, realize that your desires can deceive you. And they're not reliable guides for not only what God wants for us but what He expects of us. Because we'll give an account to Him. Just because something is popular doesn't mean that something is right. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you should. If, you jump, if they jump off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? You, you've all used that if you're a parent probably. And there's truth in it. Just because other people do, do stuff doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. In other words, as another guy put it, the morality of an action is never determined by its popularity. The morality of an action is never determined by its popularity. And this is what Israel forgot. 
They trusted their desire. They thought their desire for a king like all the other nations was right. They never questioned this desire. They became blind to it and God gave them over to what they wanted. And they took it as God's blessing when actually it was his judgment. But it's not just Israel that does this and forgets this. We do this as well. Because we too desire other kings. And we too become blind to it. We want kings that are just like everyone else. We want to do what everyone else does. We want to look like everyone else does. And we never question our desires. And we become blind. But friends, there's hope for us. If we will wake up, if we will agree with God, if we will confess our sins, that we go after other kings, like that largemouth bass I prayed about. We're lured by enticing other things that can trap us and aren't what God wants or expects. If we will confess and repent and turn away from those things and trust that He's provided a way for forgiveness through Christ, the one who came and lived a perfect life. He never went after another king. He remained faithful to His king forever. And then he laid that life down to pay for our sins, to pay for our rebellion, to pay for our pursuit of other kings. And if we'll place our faith in him, his perfect righteousness, his sinlessness is credited to us. It becomes ours. And on the basis of that, we are forgiven. Because friends, just as much as in judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing we most desire, well, similarly, and far more powerfully, in mercy, God always offers us the exact thing we least deserve. That's number three. In mercy, God always offers us the exact thing we least deserve. He gives us love and forgiveness. I mean, even in the text that we're looking at today, Chapter 11, he protects his people from the Ammonites. Like even in the midst of their rebellion and their rejection, as Ralph Davis puts it, these foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be objects of Yahweh's compassion. He goes on to say, Let no sin be glossed over. Let no one excuse its God-denying wickedness. But surely, if you are a child of God, you should rejoice here to see that your God is moolish, mulish in mercy that your sin does not dry up the foundation of his compassion that his pity refuses to let go of his people i mean look at the heart of god back in chapter 9 again verse 16 right before the verse we read just a few minutes ago three times he calls out my people my people my people Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So look at that. Save my people for I have seen or heard my people because their cry has come to me. And so this is amazing. Chapter 9, verse 16, right after chapter 8 when they've completely rejected God. And yet here he is defending them for the umpteenth time they've rebelled for the umpteenth time they've turned away and yet here he is what kind of grace and mercy does the lord have 
2 Timothy 2.13, we are faithless, He remains faithful. This is good news. And maybe it's something you need to be reminded of today. I need to be reminded of this every single day. God offers mercy to those who least deserve it. Maybe this week you've been unfaithful to God. And you're thinking in your unfaithfulness, I've done it now. I have gone too far. God is done with me now. Surely He has had enough of me by now. Well, friend, if God's affections towards you were based upon your actions, then that would be a true statement. If God's affections were based upon our actions, then that would be a true statement for me and for you and everybody in this room. But praise God that His affections for us are not based on our actions, but they're based on the actions of Christ. His perfect sinless life. His substitutionary atoning death. His resurrection. And if you are in Christ, you are part of His people. And He will, chapter 9, save His people. Hear His people's cries and receive them back to Himself. And so I don't care what you've done this week, this month, this year, in your lifetime. God's grace is far greater than your greatest sin. He may give you up for a season, but He will never give up on you. He loves His people. And He offers mercy to those who least deserve it. But it doesn't just come to you. You have to repent. Repent means turn away from and turn to Christ. So he holds it out there to you. Grab hold, repent, and turn to Christ. Now these are the lessons from Saul's rise. In providence, God accomplishes his purposes often through seemingly ordinary events. In judgment, God sometimes gives us the exact thing that we most desire. That should scare us a little bit and cause us to question our desires. And in mercy, and this should comfort us a whole lot, God always offers us the exact thing we least deserve. His love and His forgiveness. And He holds it out to you this morning. And so repent of your rebellion, repent of your unbelief, repent of your apathy, and come home to the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are so just floored that you are so faithful while we remain faithless, and that you do put up with us in our wandering, in our flat-out purposed rejection and rebellion against you in our just not realizing what we're doing, being blind to what we're doing, not purposefully doing things, but we are sinning nonetheless, running from you nonetheless. You're patient. And you are forgiving. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, this 
your word would speak to each of us in a way that maybe would wake us up to the proclivities of our own hearts to pursue things that are other kings. That maybe we give in to the subtle influence to think things are right just because they're popular instead of based upon your word. And Father, I pray that you would use us to, 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 to shake us of life is meant to be lived for you and for your glory and for your purposes and that that would reshape how we order our lives, how we order our days, how we order our families, how we order our thought life, our hobbies, our interests passions and so God help us all with every single one of us in here has areas of repentance every single one of us life is all of repentance as Luther said and so help us to repent to grieve our sin to turn away from it and then to cleave to Christ who comforts us and forgives us because of what he's done. And so we sing and behold your glory and your power. Would you impress these truths on our hearts for the glory of you and for the good of us around us. We ask it in Christ's name.